I was doing surgical wards, I was doing medical wards, and I was doing coverage as well. So anybody that went on holidays or was sick, you'd pick up their load. And that's how I came to do women's health. So the big question is, how can physical therapists create a successful career earning six figures or more and give patients the care they need without relying on insurance companies for reimbursement? If you want to learn the answers to those questions and more, then you've come to the right place. My name is Dr. Aaron LeBauer, physical therapist, business coach, serial entrepreneur, and author of The Cash PT Blueprint. Thanks for joining me today. Hello, and welcome back to the Cash PT Lunch Hour podcast. This is your host, Aaron LeBauer, and today my special guest comes all the way from Down Under, or tomorrow. His name is Anthony Lowe. Anthony is the physio detective. He is a women's health therapist. He's got a podcast, the Women's Health Podcast, etc. and Anthony came highly recommended, so I wanted to have him on the show, and he was like, absolutely, let's do it, and we found a good time. So, Anthony, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you. Wow. Oh. You're welcome. Thank you very much. I just want to slide in there that I do musculoskeletal and sports as well. Awesome. So musculoskeletal being ortho, I think you guys call it ortho PT and the sports, uh, sports performance, sports injuries, stuff like that as well. All right. Great. So um, that's awesome. And you're pretty tall. We haven't met in person, but I think from the pictures I've seen from you, you're pretty tall. Yeah, I'm six foot two. Okay. All right. So I'm six three. So not so... Uh... Far off. Not that tall. Yeah, Everybody no. else you is look, shorter, right? Well, they must be really short because you look like you're six six or six five in some of the pictures I've seen. So no, I'm just a big boy. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, so tell me, I always like to ask people, like, how'd you get into physio? Like, what was the was there a, a interesting journey, or did you just fall into it? Look, you know, from my background, Asian. Asian background, Chinese parents, but grew up 100% in Australia. I thought I wanted to do medicine. Yeah. And I just didn't study hard enough to get the marks to do medicine. And, and so, you know, a friend of mine who was smart enough to do medicine, she was choosing to do PT, because she wanted to be able to help people in a different way. And I thought, that sounds pretty cool. So mm -hmm. I did PT. That's how I got yeah. into PT. And what's really funny is that I I seem to be quite suited to PT. And uh, in the end, uh, you know, a few of my friends went on to do medicine. And I thought, yeah, probably not. I really like what I'm doing. And I got to see what doctors were doing. And that just really didn't interest me compared to what I was doing in PT. So uh, hung around in PT. It, yeah, I'd go okay. Yeah. All right. So did you, um, so in Australia, you guys go through like uni and you just kind of get like a degree or is it there's a secondary stage of getting your degree there yeah so it's unfortunately following the american model more these days mm -hmm. but there is still an undergrad pt degree which is a four years bachelor's so it's a professional degree you don't even get to choose like i think i had one elective where i got to choose what i did yeah otherwise they tell you what you're doing so that's that's the one that these days it's really really high like in the state you have to come you know, in the top 2%. When I went through, thank God, it was only the top three and a half percent. So, um, you know, not too bad. But I'm yeah. lucky. I'm lucky. I got the, I passed our GRE by one point. <laughs> yeah. You, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So lots of people do exercise sports science now. And um, so sports science or kinesiology, I think in some parts of the world it's called. Mm -hmm. And then they go on and do a post-grad master's. And I think doing it this way, we get a more rounded profession. Mm -hmm. but I 
just a stereotype, the undergrad path, they tend to be more nerdy. So the people who do the undergrad part, they tend to study a different way. Whereas the people who come through the master's program, if they're not the nerdy types, they tend to be just more fun people and relate better to people. Yeah. So it's, it's actually been quite interesting to have a look and, and see the types of people. So I appreciate the whole range of other people we have in PT because of that. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, we're in Australia, you guys are pretty much like more laid back than we are anyways. And I mean, it's, comes yeah. across really great. I mean, I, I can imagine it helps relating to patients as well, but. Yeah, you know, it depends. <laughs> so yes, we are more laid back, but we, we punch above our weight. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of the names that you hear for, are from Australia and New Zealand, for example, yeah. Maitland and Mulligan, Mackenzie, you know, and then they influence people like, you know, Stanley Paris and right. all those types of people. They, they all hung together. So, um, you know, it's, we, we go okay down here. Yeah. Yeah. No, you guys are, you guys do a lot of things better than we do and, uh, and influence us a lot, you know, <laughs> I'm just saying. Not going to lie. We do. <laughs> yeah. You chill out better. You have, uh, you have more like relaxed way of things and people are so, uh, anyways, <laughs> you guys have Bondi beach right there. So show, tell, me, tell me about the, the map behind you. Like, cause you were saying before, like, this is new for, so for your podcast. So where, where are you on the map other than standing in front of me? Um, I am at home. So oh, yeah, there it is. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm right here. I'm at home here. Um, and I work over here. Okay. And if I move out of the way, you can see the Sydney Harbour is sorry, that's Botany Bay. Sydney Harbour oh, yeah. is up here. Okay. This is Sydney Harbour. Uh-huh. And Manly Beach is up there, Bondi Beach is down here. Uh, Botany Bay is here. That's the airport. So I just marked a few things on there just so that people can see what Sydney's like. So, you know, the city itself is relatively small, but the greater Sydney area is relatively big with 5 million people in it. It takes you two hours to drive north to south and it can take you two, um, probably one and a half hours, depending on traffic to drive east to west. So, um, some of my good friends moved to um, Canberra, and uh, Renee, uh, she got. I feel uh, sorry for them. I know. Well, she got a job at the Australian Institute of Sport doing like sports psychology. Yeah, that's pretty good though. Like yeah. the AIS is um, is good, high performance unit. Yeah. So tell me, um, after after you went to physio school, you got out. Did you just start doing uh, regular PT work? Like, what was the what was the journey? Like what were the problems you were seeing and, and things you were solving, like just doing musculoskeletal work and then you got into women's health. Like what was that? Yeah. So it's kind of a mix. When, when you go into the hospital system here in Australia, you generally do rotations so mm-hmm. that you get lots of experience. So every three months they rotate you in and out of places. So I did, uh, you do every second one is outpatients. And then I was doing surgical wards, I was doing medical wards, and I was doing coverage as well. So anybody that went on holidays or was sick, you'd pick up their load. And that's how I came to do women's health. Um, Because I was doing the antenatal clinic coverage as well as the postnatal, you know, immediate recovery, explaining about postnatal recovery and just checking in on patients. And mm-hmm. it seemed like I went okay at that. And so I ended up doing uh, the antenatal exercise education for those classes at the hospital. And I was in the hospital system for three years. And I took a private practice job mm-hmm. after two years, 
uh, in the hospital system uh, just on the weekends because I thought, you know, I wanted to get my hand in um, seeing more outpatients and seeing what it's like out there. When you when you grow up in the hospital system, you get this sense that the private practitioners are just that much better. Not necessarily true. Right. But, you know, I was looking, the problems that I was seeing were, you know, people coming in with persistent pain, people coming in needing help, people coming in with just your usual backs, necks, shoulders, post-surgical rehab, all the fun stuff. But the, the key moment, and I remember it clearly, was somebody asked me why I was doing a, a, I was doing a unilateral mobilization. They said, why do you do this to me? And I said, because your back is stiff and I need to mobilize it. Mm-hmm. Right. But what, what are you actually doing? And I went, you know what? I'm relatively new. Let me go ask some other people. And so I went and asked, you know, the seniors at the hospital and they kind of gave me the same answer I gave my patient, which disconcerted me because it's like, hold on, we're doing things and we don't even really know why we're doing them. Mm-hmm. And from there, I just started questioning more and listening more. And, you know, the orthopedic senior at the time was saying, you can't feel supraspinatus. And it's like, I'm pretty sure that I'm pretty sure that you're right because we can't feel anything except the skin. And she goes, but you know, upper trap sits all over the top of supraspinatus. And it's like, right. But that's kind of like saying I'm lying in bed with my blankets over me and you can't tell that I'm there because all you can feel is a blanket. Like, mm-hmm. That did not make sense to me. So I just started not looking up to people and started trying to, trying to make sense of stuff. And that's when I started taking post-grad education. And, you know, because up until then, the post-grad education was things that was useful to me, like doing a, a Burns course to fit burns mm-hmm. garments, right? So great, I know how to do that. And, um, you know, other useful things for when you're in the hospital, how to cast and all these other things. But because um, in Australia, all the PTs do the casting. Okay. Uh, there are no cast technicians, uh, the physios, the PTs do it. And so that's when I started doing more musculoskeletal. And then that naturally evolved into a special interest in uh, the pelvis, so the SIJ, the pubic symphysis, mm-hmm. and the thorax. And, you know, the relationship between the thorax and the pelvis is interesting. And so then you can't ignore the bottom half of the pelvis, which is the pelvic organs and the pelvic floor. So right. I just naturally evolved into learning about that, as well as including my antenatal postnatal work. So, you know, all of that just ended up uh, enmeshing into what I am today, which includes the sports performance stuff. Mm-hmm. So helping improve people who don't have symptoms, but they're hitting plateaus as well as the usual, you know, ortho PT type stuff. So post-surgical rehab, persistent pain, love persistent pain and, and the women's health side of things. Yeah. So symptomatic pelvic floor conditions, as well as safely improving performance, keeping people healthy, safe, and happy is is what i like to focus on that's awesome so anthony did you get into the i mean did you kind of like gravitate towards women's health and pelvic floor because no one else was doing it or talking about it or you know because like here a lot of times people you know there's there's women and then 
the people that really want to do it. And then people are like, I'm not going anywhere close to that. Like we have like these weird taboos in America. Like how did that work? I mean, was it just something that you like had a significant interest in, which it sounds like you were interested in the whole body, but you know. Yeah. Look, I realized that, that the way we were taught was to make it easier to learn. We compartmentalize things and we break it down. It's bones, muscles, ligaments, joints, mm -hmm. nerves, and other tissue organs, etc. And so we learn those. And then I realized that, you know, we, we were taught to treat that way too. And we talk about people that way, which is terrible. Right. Oh, I've got this, I've got this post ACL coming in today, pre-op, pre-op rehab. It's like, you just talked about a diagnosis and what you're going, what you're going to do, not a person. So integrating that back into a person uh, is really important. That's number one. Number two is that I started talking about it because I just talk about what I do and, and the questions that I have. So stuff didn't make sense. And a lot of the stuff that I was doing for the pelvic floor, the pelvic PTs, the, the few that I interacted with were very pelvic floor focused. And so I'm like, yeah, but they've been seeing you for two years, three years, mm -hmm. and they still leak. And I've seen them two or three times and they've stopped leaking. That doesn't make sense. So just a lot of, just a lot of observational stuff yeah. as well as talking about, and then seeing it. And then, you know, one of the frustrating things is I leak when I run and then people saying, and you know, people don't do it so much now, but before people were saying, oh, it's because you don't contract your pelvic floor when you run. Mm -hmm. and teaching people to run with a contracted pelvic floor. Like, do you know how not normal that is? Right. It is not normal to walk around with your ribs locked down and squeezing your glutes on and switching on your core. Like all of that stuff happens normally and unconsciously. And we, we actually become anchors on people holding people back simply because we're trying to get them to think about things that should happen automatically. It's almost like creating a dependent relationship where every repetition you do, I'm going to give you feedback on. Like that's just right. not normal. That was one of the hardest things for me out of physical therapy school was we were given all these complicated exercises that made people, it's like they had to think about it the whole time and they wouldn't do it because they couldn't remember all the instructions. I was like, well, that's not, Worth, worthwhile. I'm just going to show them some modified yoga. <laughs> and then I figured some other things out, but right. That sounds like you were having some of the same issues and people It's like you, people are not just dependent on the touch, but they're dependent on the thought of what do I have to do? Right. Yeah. And you know what? I fostered this too, because that was the way that I was taught. Mm -hmm. You need me and my magic hands. And I'd seen people do it where they go, no, no, don't tell me what's wrong with you. I'm going to tell you what's wrong with you. Mm -hmm. And I just look and I listen Well, I don't listen because they're not talking, but I, f I listen through my hands and I put my hands on people and I'm able to tell them what I think is going wrong. Mm -hmm. And I learned how to correlate symptoms and their, and their history to how they're feeling. And it makes me look really, really good. The problem is, is that we're just telling stories. And so, you know, unless we recognize that we have to separate our, very subjective observations from the stories we tell ourselves to make meaning from them. Unless we can do that, we're really just confirming our own beliefs and biases, which is why people get upset 
because an idea can be wrong, but they take it personally because they've become invested in the idea instead of just doing what the observations tell you to do. Right. Right. Wow. That's powerful. So how did you get into teaching like uh, your continuing education or your pelvic floor courses? And, and did you just start doing that or were people asking you? I mean, how did that kind of evolve? Yeah. So there's a few things. Number one is that when I ran a really busy clinic, I put on two hours of continuing education for the staff every, every week. Mm-hmm. And the PTs got half an hour one-on-one with me as well, because I really believed in investing in their skills and their care and support because their success was my success. And, you know, they basically, whatever they saw, they saw a percentage of. So um, they were invested because the more that they saw, and I was throwing work at them, of course, uh, whatever they saw, they got to benefit from. So I've been, you know, from about 2000 and 2007, eight, probably 2008, I'd been running that. Mm-hmm. That's number one. Number two is from 2008, I was doing a, basically a, a six hour, a four hour, four hour lecture practical session on the SIJ for a master's program. So this is like uh, the equivalent of a residency type program or an F camp, a fellowship type program. So being able to, to teach that way was really interesting. And then I sold my practice. Well, I sold one practice in 08 and I sold, an, uh, I sold my other practice in 2012, 2013. And I was on holidays somewhere and I was training at a CrossFit gym locally and um, they were interested in 20 bucks and a couple of hours of show us how to take care of our bodies and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how that started a two hour, a two hour thing turned into a four hour thing turned into a five and a half hour thing turned into a two day seminar, you know, yeah. and I've got many different things that I can talk about, but that's how that started. Yeah. And my, you know, I did a tour in the Northwest USA and Canada, which, which was really good. I was really surprised by the turnout for that. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, I did seven locations and I basically, I think all but sold out one of them. Wow. Um, uh, and, and I shouldn't say sell out because it was all by donation. It's mm-hmm. like, you know what, you just donate what you think. Here's a recommended donation. And they paid the recommended donation. Uh, it was weird. Yeah. And, and so then from that people were like, okay, that was a one day seminar. So it was okay. Now we want a two day seminar. Um, right. So I did. Yeah. Did you do anything specific to market it or was it something that kind of came up organically for you? Uh, yeah, it's organic. The deliberate strategy was engaging on Facebook, mm-hmm. you know, up until 2012, I would say 2013, I didn't really get to find many people that agreed with what I did. So mm-hmm. it's kind of lonely you know, and so you're just in your own little bubble and Facebook comes along and, you know, I'm just using Facebook for shits and giggles (laughs) and stuff. And, you know, every now and then started talking about stuff and people added me to a group. But um, in 2013, I think, uh, CrossFit put out a video about peeing and people went nuts and I wrote a blog about it. And so people found me. Yeah, I remember. Like I I had one person say, 
you know, I've worked so hard on my Google analytics to do this. And here you are, like you rank above me for this CrossFit and peeing thing. What are you doing? So she messaged me to find out what I was doing to get up there. And it's like, I'm not doing anything, you know, like I just talk about what I do. I was writing open, I was writing CrossFit open suggestions on how to get mm -hmm. through the open and, you know, different things like that. So um, deliberate engagement on social media and asking questions about things that didn't make sense because right. I don't believe I have the answers. I just have questions and apparently people like my questions. Yeah. So why do you think some people have a hard time asking questions? Oh, because uncertainty is uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Questioning your own beliefs is difficult. Uh, 2013 was ah, 2012. 2012 was really when I started questioning my beliefs about what I was doing and why I was doing it. And so partly part of the reason why I sold the business was because I needed to, I was doing a specialization training program, which is the, you know, the highest recognition in Australia type thing. And I, I needed the time and the space to do the research and the thinking and, you know, it was good for me. Mm -hmm. They weren't ready for me and I, I wasn't ready for them. And then I went on this journey, which took about three years to, to get to a realization of where, where I wanted to be and really condense what I'd done over all those years into what was useful and what wasn't and why. Right. So, um, so yeah, asking questions is uncomfortable. Asking questions is difficult and just acknowledging that you don't know the answers can be really difficult for people because we're trained to project confidence. Right. We think that we want a confident practitioner yet. I think people just want honesty and connection. Mm -hmm. Obviously they want somebody who's technically good at what they do. I am technically good at what I do, but I just tell people if I don't know, or if it doesn't make sense, I just tell people because there's no point in lying about it. People, people know because they just figure it out. Right. So, um, so why bother? Why yeah. bother doing that? Just be honest. Have you ever had, um, an issue or have has someone else had an issue with you when you asked the question and they like, I don't know. All the time, passed out. <laughs> okay. All the time. Yeah. I'm, I'm telling you people place their identity in, all sorts of weird places. Mm -hmm. So they place their identity in the training that they have, particularly if they pay money for a certification. Yeah. So yeah, people place their identities in their certifications and their qualifications and the reasoning why what they do works. And so test retest is, you know, something that Maitland introduced, for example, all those decades ago. And we, we make this fallacious reasoning leap that, oh, I think your back is stiff. So I'm going to mobilize your, your back. And that's the thing that got you better, right? which is absolutely wrong. It might've been one of the reasons why you got better, but there's, there's probably a better explanation as to why you got better. Mm -hmm. And, and, but people use that as evidence, but what I do works. And I use that as evidence. But what are you saying that I didn't help these people? And, and it all came to a head because somebody who had eight weeks worth of knee pain couldn't squat deep. I taught her how to do something and think about her thoracic cage in a different way. 
and she was able to squat pain-free immediately. Right. And she'd been seeing other people. Mm -hmm. Um, and when she didn't do it, when she stopped doing, and like, you know, I taught her how to push in her ribs to start with. She, when she didn't press, she couldn't squat. And when she did press, she could squat. And that to me was proof that her ribs were out of alignment. And that was the reason why she couldn't squat because it was affecting her chain of whatever leading to the reason why she couldn't squat. And so then I taught her how to do all those things and it was really cool. Like she did really well. And, and, you know, it's on my YouTube two weeks later, uh, she was able to squat deep with no pain. She didn't have to think about it. Um, she was back to normal crossfitting and I got into an argument with Greg Lehman, who, who's a good guy. He's a really good guy. If you ever get to follow his work, he's got lots of free resources. He, he, uh, he says I'm a bit of a socialist, so he just gives away his stuff. It's really cool. Right. Um, anyway, we were in an argument and you know, he was challenging all my reasoning and I was getting offended. It's like, what are you saying, dude? And I was fighting back, fighting back, fighting back. Cause I felt attacked mm-hmm. and it came to a head after about three days of back and forth on Twitter. Right. And Facebook and some other places, it came to a head. And I said, what are you saying that I'm not helping all these thousands of people that I've done this on? And he goes, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that the reason why it works is probably different. And it was like all my defenses came down because mm-hmm. I realized that, oh, he's talking about ideas. He's not saying that I'm a bad person. I'm a bad therapist. He's actually talking about the reasons. And it took right. me ages to realize that, like days of typing, right? And once I realized that, then I began to see that all the resistance that I was getting from people is actually about their defensiveness, about their identity, as Mm -hmm. opposed to, you know, the intellectual pursuit of the truth, whatever the truth is. Right. So once I realized that, then it took me years, still, still working on it, to work on my languaging about how to ask people questions without making them feel attacked. And to be able to challenge to yeah, to be able to challenge them to change without putting barriers to change in place at the same time. I want you to change. And yet the way that I'm doing it is putting barriers there for you, Mm -hmm. which just sucks and explains, you know, all the, uh, the backfire effect, for example. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I totally see that where the meaning of people is to create like, discourse but the way it comes across feels like well i just got attacked right and it's probably the language of how they've typed it in right and is there a way that you've found to engage someone to get them to think critically about what they're doing or how they're doing it like is there a way like a way that you found that comes across as warm and meaningful without being cold and prickly (laughs) you know attacking people yeah, I think repetition mm-hmm. that you just like, I think it really starts inside yourself, right? So one of the things that I continue to work on, because it's difficult, it's difficult, Aaron, yeah. is to just trust that people are doing the right thing and the best thing for people. And that's actually not the hard part. The hard mm-hmm. part is the technical stuff, right? It's like, right. why are you doing that that way for that problem? Like that doesn't make sense while you're doing that. 
but that does not mean that they're a bad person. That's just a product of their training. It's just a product of modeling. Their mentors had the same type of modeling. So they've taken on that type of model as well. So reinforcing that they're good at what they do and recognizing that despite what I think is technically inferior treatment, they're getting people better. And, and I had to look for that. Right. Mm -hmm. And and I had to realize that for every patient that was walking in the door complaining about all the therapists that they seen that hadn't done what I did to help them. There's, there's people that I saw who were doing exactly the same thing down the road, saying that I was one of the people that didn't do the thing that helped them get better as well, because right. we don't know what we don't know. And that's a that's an ego. That's an ego problem, you know, and to avoid that discomfort, we tend to double down on the things that we believe instead of actually questioning what if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's about discomfort. Yeah. So, Do you think there's a right answer out there? I think there are better answers than others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's more about, oh, it's so cliched. <laughs> it's more about the journey. It's more about the pursuit of what we're trying to discover and understand as opposed to uh, the certainty that we seek. So, you know, the, the pursuit of truth is a journey. The scientific method is, is a cycle. Like it's, it, it doesn't come to an end. It just repeats. And if you understand that, then you understand that you're allowed to change your position and it doesn't make you a bad person mm -hmm. because at the time that you believe that you were doing the best you could with the information you had. And that can be overwhelming because we have the internet now, right? right. Like when I started, I was telling my daughter, there was no internet, like there was no internet for university. I actually had to show up to class. Right. I can't just sit back and watch it at home on a recording or whatever while I'm doing something like I had to show up. So understanding, understanding that is really, really important. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. Thank you. You know, I saw like, I mentioned this before, is that you've got one of these videos on YouTube of Matt Zanis, who uh, reason, one of the reasons I saw it because I was, you know, followed Matt because Matt went through one of my, my courses uh, a while back. And you, ha I think you took him from deadlifting like 405 to 425, or maybe it was 385 uncomfortably to 405, something like that. It's a lot of weight. And it was some kind of core bracing or breathing pattern technique. You didn't really teach it in the video. And I'm like, what I, one, I want to know what that is, but two, I think the conversation as it relates today is what is it, but you did it without only talking to him, not touching him and you got him a great result. And right now today, March 31st, or no, it's April 1st. It's important to know that we can affect change through video or through words, right? Absolutely. Can you just explain a little bit of like, what did you do and why is that so, how's that so impactful for people? Awesome. Um, so on the course, I teach people how to do the itty bitty contractions, pelvic floor, transversus abdominis multifidus, breathing. I teach them how to do those things because it's different, not because it's right. Mm -hmm. And that might be the different that makes a difference for people. It's not because they lacked core stability. It's just that their current pattern was associated with poor performance in Matt's case, or in other people's cases, symptomatic, you know, suffering or in some way. 
right? So leaking, uh, heaviness with pelvic organ prolapse, pain in some way, pelvic pain, back pain, whatever. So in, in the video, which is public on Facebook, uh, sorry, on YouTube, Matt is lifting 405 and he takes about four seconds to complete the lift, right? Mm -hmm. A four second deadlift. And then we get it to a two second deadlift. And if you've ever done any heavy lifting, like a two second deadlift is a lot faster, a lot more powerful than a, than a four second one. Right. I mean, you can see the difference just looking at it. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Right. Day. Like, yeah qualitatively it's just like whoa and everybody in the audience of course nice ego boost was like oh my god <laughs> so what i did was i tried to get him to contract all sorts of things mm -hmm. and he did it like i just trusted he did that but you know we were all trained in okay you're going to deadlift make sure that you screw your feet into the ground activate your posterior chain switch your glutes on you know core on ribs down shoulders down and back and um and i i tried to get him to do less of that and then he still was slow and so then i tried to get him to think about it and associate it with a kinesthetic trigger basically mm -hmm. so trying to associate a feeling with an action and so you'll see him double leg slap because that was his trigger. And yeah, then I told him not to think about it, just to trust that it yeah. was there. Yeah. Now, was that the reason why he did it? I don't know. Maybe it's just because I got him to think about something else and that was the reason why it's hard to say. But yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And it happens all the time. You know, it happens with my patients and it happens on every course. So, you know being able to being able to associate success is really mm -hmm. important to get that to get that difference using words only you know another cliche is that you have two ears and one mouth do more listening than you do talking mm -hmm. ask more questions and again your your performance comes from what you're thinking about on the inside and I know that it's super common to, to tell people to do positive affirmations, for example, right? Now, I don't have any research to back this up. It just doesn't make sense to me because who are the people who do positive affirmations? Who look in the mirror and say, you know, you're smart and you're strong and, you know, you're successful. Are the people who stand in the mirror doing that are people who don't feel smart, who don't feel strong and who don't feel successful. And your brain's really smart, right? Your brain knows that you're lying to yourself because it does not believe that you're strong, smart, and successful. So rather than, so, you know, I never really liked that positive affirmation thing and it really does work for some people. It's mm -hmm. great, but there's this, there's this cognitive dissonance for me. If I lie to myself in the mirror, no, nah, it just doesn't work. So what, what I find works better is experience rather than knowledge. For example, I'm way too overweight. Wait, I, overweight is not the, the word. Like I am morbidly obese and I know what I have to do. I know how to exercise. I've trained Olympians. I've, you know, I've worked on Olympians. I've worked with high level athletes, games athletes mm -hmm. for the last seven, eight years, CrossFit games athletes. That is, 
I know how to help the best of the best perform well and stay performing well. I've taken those athletes to increasing their their personal bests out of a plateau, Olympic weightlifters. I know what to do and yet I don't do it. And trying to understand why is interesting. The bottom line is, is that I'm currently prioritizing other things other than my health. Mm -hmm. So I just recognize it, own it and go with it. But with trying to get that initial buy-in, that result, that that positive affirmation thing doesn't work, I realize that knowledge, telling people what's wrong, doesn't doesn't work a lot of the time, right? And it's only because people don't know. Mm-hmm. And the people that, that that doesn't work on, you know those people. They're the people that have been around to therapists and going, oh, here we go again. He's going to give me that stupid external rotation exercise, even though I snatched 80 kilos, you know, 185 this morning. I'm going to do this TheraBand exercise for my shoulder. Right. Like they just become cynical because right. they don't feel it, right? And so to get that buy-in, use your words to get the feeling experience before knowledge and don't even tell them what's wrong if you can generate movement experiments that challenges their beliefs you only have to plant seeds Mm -hmm. so you do things like so you said that your core was weak but you just did this how how do you feel well i didn't feel any pain i didn't feel any problems i said okay good do you think that that's possible if your core was weak And you're going to get a yes, no, or I don't know. Right. Right. And so if you get a, if you get a yes, okay, you chose poorly, right? You didn't listen to them. So you chose a movement that, that just wasn't important to them or they could do, or they knew they could do. If they say, I don't know, leave it alone. Don't tell them. Right. Don't tell them. And if they say no, I shouldn't be able to do that. Leave that alone too and move on and do another movement experiment and just start piling up on the, this is confusing side. This shouldn't be happening side until it gets to the point where they go, why is this happening? Mm -hmm. I don't understand because learning comes out of confusion. Learning doesn't happen when you believe a hundred percent what you stand in and what you believe in and somebody's trying to teach you something that's different, you don't learn from a place of certainty, you learn from a place of uncertainty. So you generate that uncertainty and you ask them the question until they get to the powerful moment of maybe my core isn't weak. Right. Now I don't have to train them in core stability, right? But I could have told them that at the start and then I'm just forcing my beliefs onto them. Mm-hmm. And that, that just doesn't work. Like, I mean, how well does it go down when somebody comes knocking on the door, trying to sell you the latest religion, try to shove it down your throat? Very few people respond to that. Right. So why are we trying to do it in healthcare? Why are we shoving our, our beliefs down other people's throats? Why are we trying to be evangelists for the method that we believe in instead of trying to empower them by asking questions to come up with the conclusions themselves. I love it. Right. I love it. What's the most powerful question you ask your patients? Is that really true? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Wow. 
That's so awesome. So Anthony, I do want to touch on this because I, even like two weeks ago, people were like, well, I, I'm a pelvic floor therapist and I, I, how do I treat my patients using telehealth? I have to do a pelvic floor exam or an internal. I mean, as a, as a man myself, like I'm not a pelvic floor therapist, but I treat a lot of women who, and some men who have pelvic floor issues. It's the secondary issue that they come see me for. We do, we don't do any internal work. And uh, I just love it you've, if you could talk just a few minutes about about that because I think that I think that's really important for people to understand that there are if they're not if they haven't got it already there there are other ways to do this and our patients need us to not say no I'm not going to see you because I can't touch you right yeah so look number one I'm just going to recognize the difficulty with current technology as well as the potential, the, the, the potential for down, the downside potential is immense asking, like I don't do internal work Mm -hmm. and I don't get people undressed to examine their pelvic floor. So I work externally as, as a, as somebody who works with pelvic PTs, they need to see stuff, right? Right. If somebody's got lichen sclerosis, for example, you want to see the extent of that mm-hmm. and you can ask somebody to send you a photo how dangerous is that getting somebody on a video call to visualize that there are some people that are like yeah let's just do it and then there are other people that would just absolutely balk at the idea and i would balk at the idea as a therapist it's like i don't want you getting undressed for me on a camera this feels very very weird and if somebody's hacked into my system and is recording this somehow like that's all right. So I just want to recognize the difficulties. Right. Having said that we are not able to see people in person if you're in the, in a lockdown. Um, and so there, we are doing the best we can with what we have. And I can assure you that for most of the simple types of problems, we can, we can affect change. We can make things happen. And I know because I've done it like a lot online. Uh, it's not evidence. It's just a small N mm-hmm. equals one sample, but it's doable for the complicated post-surgical stuff, initial assessments. It is very difficult. So do the best you can, but you don't have to say no, right? We, we have to continue living and we have to continuing assessing and it's doable. So I've got some patients who are totally happy that they can see me in person. And I've Mm -hmm. got patients that are like, yeah, this isn't going to work online. Like, I don't think it's going to work because what they're getting from me is then what they're not getting from me is what they consider important. So there was one person I saw recently, it was a phone call. I didn't even see them. She had a really bad headache, neck pain, and she's going through chemotherapy for cancer. And she thought she needed me to work on her neck to help it do whatever she thought that was happening. Right Mm -hmm. now, consistent messaging from me is that I'm calming your system down. I'm not doing anything special. She basically, yeah, uh, I can't go into specifics, otherwise it identifies her. Right. And so, you know, 
she has a, a really rare condition that resulted when she was young. So she has all these beliefs about them. However, whenever she comes to see me, she sees me when she's really stressed out and I calm her system down using manual therapy. Now I am not mobilizing joints. I'm not doing anything like that. I am calming the system down gently and I talk to her and I let her talk. And that to me has always been the therapy. Let's calm her down and she feels better. Right. And so I said, let me get on the phone with you. And if you don't feel this session's right, mm -hmm. you don't have to pay. Yeah. Um, and so we sat and we talked and she realized that all the things that, that I was doing, cause I finally got to explain it to her and we just had, I just spent an hour and a half with her because it was important mm -hmm. and because nobody can see her right now. Right? Like right. she let somebody in the house and I'm like, no, no, no. Like somebody, if somebody has been on their own at home and has not gone out at all, maybe. Right. 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 Um, so yeah, no, don't let anybody in the house when you're going through chemotherapy, you don't have an immune system. Like it just is. Mm -hmm. So she can't see anybody. She was getting, she was getting upset and uh, just calming her down and, you know, didn't touch her right. better the next day. Wow. Um, and the other day, you know, neck pain, shoulder pain, working on the computer. She doesn't normally work on a computer. Yeah able to calm her down significantly by talking about the reasons why she has the pain. So it's definitely doable. You just have to realize that maybe what's important is not what we think is important. Maybe what's important is the connection and the ability to talk to somebody who actually cares about them. Right. And if you don't actually care about people, when you see them, they can tell there's, there's something about it. They mm -hmm. can tell, they can tell when you're a fake, people can spot fakes. Right. Um, 100%. So, yeah. So, yeah, you that's, know, you that's powerful. Genuinely Thank you. To. Yeah. Yeah. No it's the, it's, I mean, that's one of the un, I mean, that's the untangible or in, what's the word? Intangible. Intangible uh, thing that we can't control for when we're trying to even study what we're doing. And that's what makes it yeah. so hard, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. How do you, how do you tell people how to be a, a good person? <laughs> <laughs> how do you teach people how to actually care about people? You know, that's, that's difficult. It is doable, by the way, I believe mm -hmm. you can do it. And honestly, if you don't believe that you can be, you can make a good change in an online consultation, don't bother. Yeah. Cause if you don't believe it, it's going to come through, it's going to shine through and people are going to tell. Right. So don't bother until you believe that it's possible. And if you want to believe that it's possible and you currently don't believe it's possible, just do it for free. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Do great. it for free and see what happens I and mean, just practice on people. Yeah. What you, I mean, what you've already said today, the most, one of the most powerful things we can do is ask the right questions to people and listen. Yeah. Not even the right questions, man. Just, just question. ask questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ask no, questions and listen. Yeah, oh, that's great. Anthony, um, is there anything else uh, before we uh, finish up that you think is important or that people should know? Yeah, there is. Number one, and you know, all of these things, 
that I talk about, they are reminders actually to myself because I have these problems. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I still have these problems and I have to think about them because it is not natural and I can put on a performance and make it look natural, but this, but this is a, you know, me, I am a work in progress always. Right. And, you know, until the day I die, I will always be working on things. I want to encourage all the therapists out there, health professionals, fitness professionals. It doesn't really matter what profession you're in. If you're interacting with other people, it's not about you. So it's not about that you're a PT. So, you know, you, you said that, you know, people can call me Dr. LaBauer and the way that you said it told me yeah. that, you know, you, you realize that that's not really that important, right. but, um, but you know, at the time it seemed like it was, and it's not about you. It's not about your qualifications. It's not about whether you come up with the right thing or not. And it's not your responsibility to get people better. You are not their parent. So don't chide them when they don't do their exercises. Ask questions because maybe what they're saying to you and what they're doing is inconsistent. And instead of getting mad at them like a child, like you might with a child, maybe realize that they're saying the right things to you, but they're doing something different because they just prioritize differently and it's too hard for them to admit it. So ask the questions. It's not about you. It's not about, you know, there are people that are burning out because they feel the responsibility of trying to fix people. You are not a fixer. You do not carry a toolbox with tools in them. So don't go around collecting tools for your toolkit. You are not a mechanic. You are not a body mechanic. You are a person who is interacting with another person and our nervous systems interact. And that seems to be very, very powerful and very, very important. And that's why a student DPT can help somebody get better where an experienced person wasn't able to. Mm -hmm. Right. And we've seen it. I've seen students help people that experienced PTs couldn't. And I'm going to suggest to you that if all of us have had clients that have said, Oh my God, where have you been all my life? Right. You know, you're the only person that has been able to help me. If all of us are having that experience, how can it be possible that it's technical experience and knowledge? That's the difference. Mm -hmm. So it's not about you. It's about them. And if you reset your focus, and I know people are going to say, but that's, are you suggesting that I'm selfish? I'm just like, no, I'm suggesting that you don't even realize that you're making it about yourself. It's my diagnosis and I'm telling you what you have to do about your body. But if you ask me the question, I'm going to say it's your body, it's your choice, but I'm going to act differently to that. Yeah. And that's an inconsistent message. It's got to come from within that it's not about you. It is truly about them. And that means that let them choose to be the boss of your, of their life. It's their body. It's their choice. You give them good information. You give them your opinion and your recommendations, but no matter, but I also add whatever you choose, let me know so that I can support you. Even if you disagree with me. Right. And, um, yeah, I tell people go look up Google. You know, people say, oh, don't look at Google. It's bad. 
And it's like, no, go look up Google and then tell the only thing I asked you to do is to tell me what you find so that we can talk about it. Because trying to tell someone not to do something, what are you? You know, their parent, their dictator, their boss. Mm-hmm. Like, why are you forbidding somebody to do something? Don't do that. You should say, I, you know what? If you want to go look, just bring it in. We'll have a chat about it. Yeah. Or jump on a call now and we'll have a chat about it at your next appointment. Um, so yeah, it's not about you. It's about them. And I know that you want the best for them. Everybody I've met wants the best for their clients. Mm-hmm. So that means that you cannot rest in the knowledge that, oh, I want the best for my clients. It's not about me. It's about them. That means that you have to work extra hard to see how you're making it about them. Right. And if you don't know how message me, I'll tell you how, because yeah. I know how to ask questions. Dude, that's so awesome. Um, well, Anthony, thank you so much. If, if someone does want to message you or get in touch with you, what's the best place for them to find you? Yeah, look, um, physio detective on instagram and twitter and facebook it's fb.me forward stroke anthony low a-n-t-o-n-y-l-o is my personal page physio detective my pt education and the women's health podcast uh, other ways you can find me if you just google physio detective all my stuff comes up there's only yeah. one of us yeah that's so awesome well hey thank you so much for being here i really appreciate it and that was really awesome, awesome show. You, hopefully I asked, asked some good questions to, for thought-provoking, but I got a ton out of that. So thank you. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Look, thank you very much for having me on. And, um, and honestly, I love connection. I'm all yeah. about connection. So if you want to reach out and just chat, uh, I'm happy to on Messenger. The hardest thing is phone calls and uh, video calls. You know, right. I've got to schedule them. But, um, but yeah, otherwise... Yeah. slide into my dms let's right, have a chat let's do it well thank you anthony uh well, this is aaron labauer and this is the cash media lunch hour anthony Lowe, aaron labauer start asking more questions and we'll see you on the next show thanks so much hey what's up it's aaron real quick if you're just starting a cash-based physical therapy practice or you already have one and you want to learn how to grow it and scale it this is for you I just released my brand new book, The Cash PT Blueprint, because I want to get this book in the hands of every physical therapist out there. I want to give it away to you for free. All I ask is that you pay a little bit of shipping and handling, and you'll not only get the steps to create your own cash practice, but the tools to grow it and scale it beyond what everyone else thinks is possible. To snag your copy right now, go to cashptblueprintbook.com. That's C-A-S-H-P-T-B-L-U-E. P-R-I-N-T-B-O-O-K.com. And we get your copy. Give me a shout out somewhere on social media. And we'll talk to you soon.